Hello, this is Christopher Eck. I am the lead pastor at Bethany Covenant Church in Bedford, New Hampshire. Welcome to our podcast. I hope this message inspires, helps, and encourages you as you seek to live your life with Jesus. For more information about our church or to support the ministry, visit BethanyCovenant.com. Enjoy the message. Well, good morning and welcome to Bethany Covenant Church. We are excited that you are here with us today, whether you're joining us on Facebook or our website or on YouTube. Excited for you to be here. If you're joining us later on our Spotify podcast account, welcome. We're excited to be continuing in our series, and today we are in the book of Zechariah. But before we get to that, I have to tell you, my wife, Caitlin, has a new love in her life. It's not a person, so there's no worry for me. In fact, this love has done nothing but make my life better. Caitlin has fallen in love with HelloFresh. I'm not sure if you know about this service, and no, we're not sponsored by them, so this is not a commercial, but I do want to tell you, it has made dinner time for me a unique experience that I have not experienced in these past five years, because our five-year anniversary is coming up, and for the past five years, I've cooked probably 99% of the meals that are eaten in our house, and yet now, because Caitlin has joined HelloFresh, she's cooking. Not all the time, a couple of times a month, but it's wonderful to be able to sit on the couch and just watch her cook, and then she brings me my dinner. It's such a novel thing. The reason it's working for her, though, is because Caitlin is an unapologetic rule follower. You give Caitlin a set of rules, and she's going to memorize them, and she's going to follow them to the T. You give her a very, very well-put-together cookbook with detailed and quality photos, she'll spend hours not cooking, but looking at the cookbook, planning out meals that she might one day want me to cook for her. But with HelloFresh, she now has a way to do this. And the reason is because they offer clear, concise directions. They give her this little sheet of paper and says, hey, this is what it will look like when it's all over. And then step by step, it shows with the ingredients that they provide already measured out for you exactly what to do so that you end up with the product that you want. What does this tell me? It tells me that Caitlin is not alone in loving, clear, concise directions. And that brings me to the next discovery that I've made just this past week. I didn't make personally. Uh, I've spent most of my time here. But far away in uh, the southeast of Jerusalem, in the site of the Dead Sea Scrolls findings uh, all those years ago, they have found just this week a brand new copy of a manuscript of the book of Zechariah, which conveniently we're preaching on today. This uh, fragment, a parchment, is aged 2,000 years at least. And there's no new bit of the Bible. This is a copy of the book of Zechariah that we already have. But what's exciting is that what they find is exactly what we have in our scripture today. Continues to build up the liability of our Bible while also giving us a little bit of information about what it was like to read the Bible, to read the scriptures back then. And the fragment that was found has a key verse for us today. And it's found in Zechariah 8, 16, and 17. So this is the fragment that was found. It's written, these are the things you are to do. Speak the truth to each other and render true and sound judgments in your courts. Do not plot evil against each other and do not love to swear falsely. I hate all of this, declares the Lord. 
In this statement, the people hear what so many of us today want, and that's clear direction, instruction given to us by God. And that brings us to our sermon today, because the question is, what kind of product would these instructions produce? This week, we remain in the post-exilic period that we've been in since we came out of the book of Daniel. Uh, God is revealed early on, yet again, to be a God that is seeking relationship with his people, that he's brought up out of exile. But things have not changed when it comes to God. Our God is a holy and perfect God. And as we can read, these people, just like us, are not either of those things. And so he continues to create systems, to put forth a situation that would allow a holy and perfect God to have relationship with a people that are far from that. But sadly, they keep coming up short or not trying at all. And that's what caused the exile to begin with. And that's why Zechariah is speaking to them in this section, reminding them, let's not do what our fathers did in the past. In fact, that's how the, word, the book opens. It opens with a word going from the prophet Isaiah from God saying this. It says, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. When I was going over this sermon with my wife beforehand um, and a friend, they were like, what is the Lord of hosts? What Zechariah is receiving here is a reminder that this is the Lord of all things. This is not some national God, some fake little g God. This is the Lord of all, the, all, of, all of creation. And he is telling them, don't do what you did in the past. And if you return to me, if you come back to me, live in a way that allows me to be with you, which I have wanted from the beginning, I'm here waiting. I will return to you. The Lord is reminding these people, don't lead yourself back into exile. Come back to me instead. And the people, they peop, the people do what people do. They hear the command and they say, okay, yeah, we repent. We won't do that. Zechariah 1.6 says, so they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts proposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. We are back here in the land and we will live as he wants us to live. And yet, what we find by reading through the rest of this book is that the kingdom that they find themselves back in is not the one they expected. And they, though they say they have repented, continue to be far from God with both their actions and their hearts. This is simply not the kingdom they were looking for. The people of Zechariah's day noticed that things were not as it was promised to be by their prophets of old. The exile that we learned about during our study on the book of Daniel, it was supposed to last just 70 years. Prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 25.11 says it's going to be 70 years, and then God would bring them out of it. And it, now, at this point, 70 years is up. And he said that he wouldn't just bring them out of exile, but bring them into a promised messianic kingdom, a kingdom that was ruled by a savior, an in, a perfect, holy, and everlasting savior. 
They did not want a sad facsimile of the old kingdom that they had lost. They wanted this kingdom that the prophets had promised them. They would have held on to scriptures such as this. The prophet Jeremiah said in 33, 6, 7, Behold, I will bring to Judah and Israel health and healing. I will heal them and reveal to them abundance of prosperity and security. I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel and rebuild them as they were at first. The prophet Isaiah told them of the increase of his kingdom, this messianic kingdom, and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And even the prophet Daniel, towards the end of the exile, said this. He said, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before them, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. While these people are seeming to hope that the nightmare which had begun way back in 586 B.C. with the fall of Jerusalem, they hoped that it was coming to an end. Zechariah reminds them of something, though. Even though they wish for that kingdom that they were promised, Zechariah reminds them that the restoration that they're looking for, that promised kingdom that they were looking for, requires a change on their parts. What caused the exile could not come into this new kingdom. They could not just be resilient and push forward doing the same old thing. They must also repent and be transformed. So Zechariah gives them, in the next section of his book, these visions that I have to tell you, when I I found out that I was going to be preaching this section, these visions were a bit intimidating. I encourage you to spend some time in chapters 2 through 6 in Zechariah And really dig into them, but do it with a guide. I find that the Bible Project, bibleproject.com, is a wonderful resource, and they definitely helped me with the preparation of this sermon. And they do a great job at breaking down these visions that God gives to Zechariah to give them a glimmer of hope and an idea of what this coming kingdom might look like if certain things happen. The visions also reveal what's happening right now. And the way that they are paired in the book It's really interesting. The first goes with the last, the second uh, goes with the second to last, and the third with the third to last until it meets in the middle. This chiasm creates an overwhelming message, and and I think it can be summed up if we just look at the pairs. The first two visions, or the first and last vision, shows these horsemen going out into the whole world. The first vision shows that the world is at peace now. The people of Israel, back in Israel, the kingdom of Persia has destroyed Babylon, conquered Babylon, and the world is at peace. But then the last vision shows that there is going to be a peace even greater than the one we have now. The second vision and the second to last speak to Israel's past, the exile and what caused them to be scattered, and also the sins that they carried with them even today. The third and third to last speak of Jerusalem, the city, the capital city, the place of the temple. It speaks of its rebuilding, which is going on right now. Zechariah, along with Zerubbabel and Haggai, who we've learned about, they were actively rebuilding Jerusalem. 
And this vision speaks of what that is. But then it gives a glimmer, it gives a view of what that kingdom will be like when it is fully and completely restored in a way that we've yet to see. And the final two visions describe the leaders of the Jewish people. They talk about King Zerubbabel and the high priest Joshua. And the message that they are given is that they are to lead the people, but not with dirty rags. The high priest is shown in in dirty clothes, which God takes from him and says, no, you're not going to wear the old clothing. You're not going to wear these old habits. You're not going to wear these old sins. Let me give you new clothing. You must wear this now. And he says to both of them that success in this kingdom will not come just by you rebuilding a temple. That is just a building and a building alone. And it's not going to happen by your power, not by your might. You cannot rest in the security of governments and all of the systems that are propping you up that you can see and that you can feel and that you can understand. God tells them this in Zechariah 4, 6. He says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That is what will rebuild this kingdom and will bring about the kingdom that they were looking for. And then Zechariah 6.15, and this section closes with one final promise. He says, and all of this shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. But in response to these visions, instead of being filled with the desire to go out and to be that type of people, the people come to Zechariah and they say yet again, when will God bring this kingdom that you're talking about? The one that you're describing, that's what we want. What must we do to have that? I can appreciate the impatience of these people. I can understand that they wanted what was promised to them. But God responds to them through Zechariah with a question of his own. He responds saying, okay, when will you start living like citizens of that type of kingdom? When are your hearts and your ways going to reflect what a citizen of that messianic kingdom desires and needs? You can't bring those old ways into this. So when will you change and be prepared and able to come through those gates. God makes it clear to them, the coming of the messianic kingdom is conditional, not to what he does, but to what they do in relation to him and to each other. So what they must do in order to live in this kingdom, how are they to know? Okay, God, you want us to be different. What does that look like? Well, that leads us back to the scripture that I started with that was found in those caves just this week. Of course, we've had it, but a new version of it is found that brings new focus to it. Isn't it exciting that the New York Times, the USA Today, all of CNN, all of these different news organizations were talking about this scripture this past week. They made sure to even include these words in the articles that I read. So people that have never opened a Bible get to read what Zechariah is telling to the people those thousands of years ago. He says, if you want to be messianic people, if you want to be ready for this kingdom, then this is what you are to do. Speak the truth to each other and render true and sound judgments in your courts. Do not plot evil against each other. 
And do not love to swear falsely. And listen to the end again. It declares, the Lord declares that I hate falsity. This brings us back to clear and concise directions that we're all looking for. Even in a time period where there's so many options, so many ways to think, at the end of the day, I still believe that people are hungry for direction. There is a reason that there is now such a thing as a life coach. People want to know how to thrive today. And thankfully, for the people back then, as for us, God gives clear directions. Citizens of the God's kingdom will not be defined solely by how they see him and their belief in him. They might believe all the right things about God, but what we find in this little two-scripture section of Zechariah, we find that God cares also about the way we treat one another. This shouldn't come as a surprise. If you go back to Deuteronomy and you go back to the Old Testament, um, those early books, and then the Ten Commandments, of the ten Six deal with the way that we treat each other. The four are the first ones that deal with how we treat and respect and honor our God. But the final six all deal with this horizontal relationship. God cares about the vertical, us to him. That's essential. But this should also be reflected in the way we treat one another. So let's break down these directions. Let's look at what God was asking these people to do and to see how they are to treat one another. We'll just stick in Zechariah 8, verses 16 and 17. And he starts off by saying, speak truth to one another. This word carries with it all of the ideas of faithfulness and trustworthiness. For a people that had been in exile, for a people that had experienced wandering in the desert, for a people that were different because of the way they worshiped only one God, Trustworthiness and truthfulness is essential. When you're different, you got to make sure that you trust the difference that is there. And you want to make sure that people that see you know that you're worthy of that trust. If you already look different, you don't also want to seem to not speak honestly. And that carries into the next part, he says, also to render true and sound judgments. This conveys the same idea of God and his passing of judgments. We worship a God and we're created in the image of a God whose judgments are sound. Not just the evil judgments that we think of, the judgments that bring desolation, but also the good judgments. God does not falsify what he says and he acts exactly as he says he's going to. That's the same standard that he wants his people to hold to. He wants them to be a people that when you enter into their courts, you can trust that what's going to happen will be fair and honest. All of this language about trust is going to continue. But then we have this second section. He says, do not plot evil. It also can be read as don't harbor evil in your hearts for others. That's seemingly the strongest and most extreme thing that we're told not to do. Like, oh gosh, I would never harbor evil in my heart. That sounds terrible. I'm not a Marvel villain. I'm not plotting the end of the world. But isn't it something we all struggle with? They struggled with it then, we know, because he had to make sure to tell them not to do it. But also today, it is easy for us 
plot evil, to hold evil thoughts, to think poorly, to think negatively of other people. What I love, though, is that God doesn't give them any outs. He doesn't give them any qualifiers. There's no exceptions to this command. Do not plot evil to each other, period. It's not, do not plot evil unless they are evil, then you can plot evil to them. It's not, do not plot evil unless they say, believe, or act in this way. No. It says, regardless of what they do, do not plot evil. The word plot there, it carries with it the idea of action and, and um, ambushing. Don't, don't put evil on somebody. But it also conveys the same idea of a plot of land. Our hearts cannot be fragmented where there is a section where evil remains if we are to be messianic kingdom people. God, as we've already said, is a holy and perfect God. He can't interact in that way. And so he reminds them, do not do this regardless of what they do to you. And in a lot of ways, that makes complete sense because our God, we've treated him with nothing but evil throughout all of history. And yet, what does he do for us? Is lovingly, seekingly seek us for relationship. And lastly, love no false oath. Again, if you haven't picked up on God's uh, focus on truth, three of the four things that they're commanded is all about rendering true statements, living a life that is trustworthy. This idea here conveys the idea that God, he, he speaks this earlier in, Jeremiah, uh, in, in Zechariah, saying that he wanted Jerusalem to be a city of truth. The reality of their relationship with God is founded on the truth of who he is and what he does. So if people come into the courts of Jerusalem and find them to be a den of snakes, a den of people that just render false judgments, that doesn't look great towards the God that has established them. To sum them up, all four of them can simply be put this way. God wants us to be caring to each other. Don't lie. Bring truth and peace. Hold no evil towards anyone. He hates the fact that we do that. He hates that we harbor evil. Why? Because it removes us from his presence. This is the message he gave to them 2,000 years ago, and it's the same that he gives to us today. The combination of instructions here are appealing to me, though, because they don't sugarcoat. They don't cut corners. God is speaking constantly of truth, but he also doesn't want us to be hateful in living that out. That is is a balance that some of us really struggle with. As a youth pastor, I'm often shook by the responsibility of having kids come to the church, sometimes for the first time. We've had students come in and sit in a pew, and the only time they've ever seen a pew is in the movies or in television. I have had kids that come in in 6th or 7th grade, or even 10th, 11th, and 12th grade, who have never heard a worship band, who have never heard a sermon Some of the kids at first thought, wow, it's great that you guys do karaoke here every week. What I always remind our volunteers because of this, what I tell our student leaders and what I remind myself is that we are to speak truth to these students. But if they never come back, we can't continue to bring the gospel to them. 
It is important for us to hold on to truth, but it is also important for us to be a community that people want to be around. It doesn't matter how good your beliefs are, how trustworthy your theology is, if no one wants to listen to you. That's not what we see exemplified in the Gospels with Jesus, who was able to perfectly tell people exactly what was going on in their hearts and their minds, and yet they still wanted to be around him. As ministers, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we want to be people that others look towards and say, I want to be around them. They hit me with some hard truths, but I trust that they recognize how difficult it is because they themselves admit it as well. That's the kind of God that we see here in these texts from Zechariah. Hold tight to truth, but don't sacrifice your caringness for it. These directions are given by Zechariah. They're not good only just for the people of that time, but also for our own, as we've said. Because we too are a people that are looking for the complete coming of the messianic kingdom. Yes, we know that Jesus has come. We look to the cross in this time of Holy Week coming up, but it's not here completely. It's already here, but not yet complete. So I can appreciate their longing for that full vision that had been given to them. So I asked the same question that they asked. What are we to do in the meantime as we wait for the coming of the kingdom to be complete? I think the answer is the same as Zechariah gave to them. We are to live as people ready to be part of a kingdom such as that. As followers of Christ and citizens of an infinitely greater nation than any that are existing here on earth, we are called to live a life that exemplifies the life lived by our Savior, Jesus Christ. Just as I said, he was the ultimate example. He gave the perfect direction and then showed us what it looks like to do it. It doesn't come necessarily with colorful illustrations. Uh, most Bibles are, are, are pretty bland when it comes to that. And it doesn't give us a perfect estimate of when that finished product is going to come out. But what we do have presented in the Gospels are concisely stated Examples, directions, decrees, ways to live a life that God says will bring thriving and the spreading of his gospel. If I was to take one, sum it all up, it would be Matthew 22, 37 through 40. When Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? This is what he says. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Do you see here that same vertical and horizontal idea that, yes, we are to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, but we can't, ne- uh, we can't neglect the way we treat each other. That love that we have for God should spread out so that we love everyone as we love ourselves. Loving God is probably the easiest for me of these two commandments. I think it was, in a lot of ways, the easiest for the Israelites because they did have these examples of when God had come through for him. But loving people, I don't want to name any names, but some people are just pretty tough to love sometimes. I know me, um, I know I'm always lovable, but there's some people that you just have to grin and hope for the best. But Of course, I'm joking, but we all know there are people in our lives that just are hard to love. So what are we to do 
if this is the greatest commandment. There's a part from an essay that C.S. Lewis wrote called The Weight of Glory. He wrote this in the midst of World War II in 1941. The, the whole world is in chaos. All of these severe ideologies are causing people to hate one another in ways that have never been felt before. And they also had means of destruction that had never even been imagined. And yet, this is what Lewis wrote at that time period. He said this. He says, It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. Now, that might sound strange. Just bear with me. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you, if you now met, you would only do so in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. There are no ordinary people. You have talked never to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, art, civilization, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. Lewis in this section reminds us, he's not saying that we're going to become gods and goddesses. Don't misinterpret him as having poor theology. What he's saying is all of us are destined to be remade and renewed and given a body that when people saw Jesus' renewed body, it, it, it was different. It glowed. And that's the same resurrection that we're promised, that we will be renewed and remade without a single imperfection. That if people saw that today, they might be tempted to worship because it is so glorified. And that's what we're promised. But we also have this truth that if you deny that, God will give you exactly what you want. A separation from him and a separation from that possibility. If we see people, everybody, not merely as an annoyance today, but as somebody who has either one of those fates at the end, would it not change the way we treat them? Even if they are the most despicable people, do you ever wish for them to become an everlasting horror? I don't think so. You can't have the love of Christ in your heart and wish that upon anyone, regardless of what they do. As the kingdom of the Messiah that has already, as, as the kingdom of the Messiah that has already broken through and, and is in this world, as citizens of that kingdom, our calling is to bring caring truth, love to everyone. Our earthly and temporal allegiances are just secondary trappings. They are they're boundaries that we can break, but they're boundaries that God has set us in, not to define us but to put the work before us that we are to do most quickly. But as citizens of Israel, as they were struggling and wondering when God was going to bring about his kingdom, we too can struggle with the weight. Why? 
Why is it that when Christ has given us such perfectly explained, clear, concise direction, why is it that we can't, when we know the stakes, we know what was offered, why do we sometimes struggle to live into this, just as the people in Zechariah's day did? I think it has a little bit to do with this. This past week, I was able to go skiing with our associate pastor, JT, and one of our associates, Elizabeth, um, who, who makes sure that the live stream is always working, among many, many other jobs. And Elizabeth and JT are both great skiers. I'm what you would call a proficient skier that has learned to fake it until you make it. I, I do fall sometimes, but I'm really good at pretending it was on purpose. And um, I'm able to do a decent amount. I can, I can hold my own with them when they're holding back. But what I love about going skiing with them is that they always are willing to give me really good tips. JT will explain exactly. He will even talk about the way that my foot should be, the way that my toe should help with the turn, the way that I should lean into this, my ski. He'll even take my ski sometimes and show me, and you've got to cut in just like this. And I hear it. I, I see it. And what I love to do, too, is to ski behind him, and I try to mimic exactly what he's doing. I don't know how good I'm looking. I'm sure it's not that great. But I see what he's doing. I hear what he's saying. But it still is taking time for all of that to sink in. Why? Because I have a history of skiing in some crappy places in West Virginia where I didn't have to ski well. And I just learned to do it on my own. And I developed a lot of habits that are hard to break. Yeah, I can get by on them. But if I want to be the great skier that JT and Elizabeth are, I've got to break those habits and let that new instruction, that new teaching, that new way of doing it sink in. This is exactly what's happening in the people of Israel, and it's what's happening to all of us. We are learning to become kingdom people. The direction is there. Our hearts and our heads are able to receive it, but it takes time for us to follow fully and be fully aware of God's spirit that has to take over. Don't you remember earlier in this section in one of the visions, God told the people, he said, it's not going to be by your might, not by your power, not by your systems, not by what you can see and that you can hold and that you can put a name on. None of that is going to bring about the kingdom. You're going to have to learn to trust in my spirit. That takes time. But thankfully, Thankfully, we have a God that is patience personified. In the same way that we are patient with new people coming into this church, when I have teenagers that are sitting in the pews, and sometimes I just want to pull my hair out, trying to get them to listen, to hear, to see, I have to remind myself, patience. The spirit, it takes time to take hold. Just as I, when I was their age, was a frustration the Spirit is still taking hold of me. The transformation is, is ongoing. The salvation is complete. It is done. But to become citizens of a heavenly kingdom, we have to continue to step back and let God step forward. Next week, Pastor Chris is going to conclude our study on Zechariah, and we will hear of the necessity for someone to transform us to being people that are able to receive the power of the Spirit. We need somebody to come in and not only just take our feet in their hands, but actually enter into us and to live through us and for us, to redeem us of our brokenness that we can't redeem on our own. Zechariah speaks more about the coming Messiah than any other book in the Old Testament beside Isaiah. Why? Because I think Zechariah knew keenly 
that the people that he was surrounded with, and himself included, desperately needed a messianic king if they were going to be ready for a messianic kingdom. They knew that God was sending a savior, and we now today know it fully because he's already come. This Easter season, we were able to remember what happened at Christmas and see it fulfilled in the Easter story. The transformation that is necessary, it can start today. The directions are simple, they're clear, and they're concise. Repent, believe in Christ, and follow him. Are you ready to do that? Are you ready to fully do it? Is there anything holding you back? Let it go today. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you for this text, that you have given us the ability to look back in the way that you have behaved, the way that you have interacted, the way that you have continued to lovingly seek after your people. And then you broke down all borders. You said, it's not going to just be these people, but I'm offering up new life. I'm offering up repentance. I'm offering up transformation to anyone who accepts it. Lord, allow us to be a kingdom people that hold close to truth, hold tightly to what is real and what is going to create a thriving society and a perfected person. But Lord, allow us never to neglect caring for each other. Allow us to be a people that is appealing to be around. Lord, and continue to be patient with us as we step further and further in a closer relationship with you. Lord, if there's anyone that has not yet accepted this new life that you offer, Lord, allow today to be the moment that they do. We pray for them, and we pray for this whole church as we continue to seek you and the mission that you have given us. We pray all of this in your son's precious name. Amen. Well, I'm excited to be able to uh, see you all in person soon as you're comfortable. Services at 1045 every Sunday. And be sure to check out BethanyCovenant.com for all of our information on our Holy Week services. Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Easter Sunday, all of it is coming, and we want you to be there and be part of it. Make sure that you are being caring to everyone God has put in your life. And until then, go with God and trust in him. We pray this in your name. Amen.